When Denise and I first got married, we'd probably been married maybe six months or so. And we're at that point in our relationship where the honeymoon was still going on, but some of the shine of the honeymoon was off that we knew we loved each other and we were committed forever, but we just realized there may be some days we don't like each other as much as other days. And so um, I remember this one day in particular, she did something. I don't even remember what she did, but she did something. And I turned and what I was thinking in my head was, why did you do it that way? But what came out of my mouth was not what was in my head. Now, she's trained me much better now, 30 years later, so I know what to say. But I looked at her after she did whatever she did that I couldn't understand it. And I said, Denise, how could God make somebody so beautiful but yet so dumb? Right. She's trained me a lot better. She turned and looked at me and said, he made me beautiful, Keith, so you would marry me. He made me dumb so I would marry you. So she put me right there in my place. Now, if you've been around very long, I've probably shared that corny joke at another point in a sermon before. And it's corny. It's a joke. But there is a little bit of truth, I have to admit, in what she said. She married me. And I think there could be a couple of decent characteristics that she got when she married me. But there's also some... some Maybe I'm not dumb, but just some lacking in some areas. And one of the areas that I know I'm lacking in, and you could even say dumb, when it comes to fixing and repairing things around the house, I have zero ability to fix anything, to figure out how it's supposed to work to fix it. And I even have just as much zero ability of wanting to try to fix it. So when things get broken around our house, um, one or two things happen. I have an option I can either just discard it, throw it away and be done with it, or I can just let it just be broken and let it just stay there dysfunctionally. And because another characteristic of mine is I am cheap, I don't discard it because if I discard it, she's gonna want me to go buy her a new one. So I've learned in our relationship when something around the home, whether it's a lamp that's broken or a hinge on one of the, the cabinet doors or you name it, when something becomes broken, since I don't have the ability to fix it, I've learned just to kind of let it be broken. I don't discard it, I just let it remain broken. Anybody in here would identify with me? Or maybe here's a better way to decide. Anybody in here live with somebody like me that you want to just kind of confess from? There you go right there. So, so it really is. All of us have things around the house that are broken, right? But here's what I've learned. It's not just the things in our house that can be broken. It's also the relationships within our homes that can be broken. Whether it's the relationships within the immediate home we live in, maybe we expand our home to the family unit beyond our house, or maybe it's friendships, but we all have relationships within our lives that are broken. They, they could look like two spouses who live in the same house, but are emotionally like strangers with one another. That's a sign of brokenness. They look like all things are well, but there's not that emotional connection. I think of kids and parents. Remember when your kids are like third grade and you'd send them to the room and they're not talking to you because you wouldn't let them play the game system as long as they wanted to? That's one thing when a child is third grade. But unfortunately, there's probably many of us in this room that have broken relationships with our grown kids. And it's not over not able to play video games as long as they want to. It's over something that, quite honestly, could be just as silly and innocent as that. But for whatever reason, within the relationships of grown adults, parents, and kids, those relationships become fractured and they're no longer together. I think of siblings no longer speaking to one another, maybe over a financial situation or someone in the family passes away and there's just conflict within that grieving time. Um, it's not just family, is it? Friends. 
you can probably think back to a relationship, a friendship that you had in your life at some point, and there was a close relationship, but something happened. You may not even can put your finger on it anymore, but for whatever reason, there's a conflict that was never resolved within that relationship, and you're no longer friends with that person. So I think we could all just confess together that while we have broken things in our homes, we probably also have broken relationships. And here's what I've learned that many times people take the same approach to broken relationships as they do broken things. The two options, either just discard it. Let's just act like that relationship's not important. Let's just cross our arms and just going, well, it doesn't bother, it doesn't matter to me anymore. And you just act like it's not there. Or we continue to live in that broken relationship and the dysfunction that comes from a broken relationship just permeates throughout many other relationships in your family. And so I look around the room and they're all probably shaking their head going, okay, you're talking my language today, Keith. But did you know there's a third option towards those broken relationships? Not discarding it and acting like it's not there. Not living with the brokenness and the fracturedness of that relationship. But there's actually a third option. And it's probably a much, much better option. And that is to try to repair that relationship. In biblical terms, we often call this Reconciliation. And what I want to do over the next few weeks, actually two weeks, this week and next week, is do a series over biblical reconciliation. And here's the reason I'm keeping it for two weeks. I'm going to go ahead and warn you right now, it's going to be a little bit heavy. And why is it heavy? Because it's heavy because for many of us, we do have indeed broken relationships in our lives, and we are holding those relationships. So it's not the reconciliation that's so heavy, it's the relationship that's so heavy. But we pull back the curtains and we shine the light on, the, on that brokenness and it just feels heavy all over again. So we're going to take two weeks and look at the biblical approach to it. Now, you may be here and as soon as I said we're going to talk about broken relationships and reconciliation, you're going, Keith, I don't like you to call it broken, okay? Can we just call it maybe cracked or needing repair? It makes us feel a little bit better. But there's others in here, the minute I say broken relationships, you're going, you're not even coming close to this relationship. It is maybe like smashed to smithereens would be a better description of the relationship that you're thinking. But regardless of what relationship it is, I think it's a vital topic that we talk about. And there's that, this tendency to say, no, let's not talk about it. But here's why I think it's so important. As Jesus followers... We should be approaching every relationship, both good and bad relationships, in the way that Jesus wants us to approach those relationships. And we're going to find out over the next two weeks that Jesus did indeed have some very specific things to say when relationships within our lives aren't healthy, when relationships within our lives are, are broken, when relationships within our lives need to be repaired. So if you have your Bible, we're going to have it up on the, here on the screen if you didn't bring your Bible. We're going to begin today in the fifth chapter of the back book of Matthew. Fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. And as we get into the scripture, let me visually, let me let you just kind of see the context. Because I think the context of where this passage is coming from is just as important as the actual passage in what Jesus is going to say. Matthew chapter 5 is found in that section of our Bible, in the book, the part of Matthew, that we often refer to as the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount. And so it's a, it's a moment that Jesus has pulled some people close to him, say, I, I say people, probably lots and lots of people. It's one of these days that he's addressing them. And as far as we can tell, it's not a day that he's giving um, or doing healings and doing some of his miracles. It's more just him just teaching. 
And so you can imagine Jesus sitting on a hillside and there's just hundreds, maybe thousands of people gathered around him and he's teaching. And some scholars will look at this and say, at this moment that Jesus begins teaching, he ratchets it up a notch on what it means to follow Jesus. In other words, he's saying, if you think being good is good enough, let me give you more so you can be even gooder in doing this. But here's what I say. As I study this, Jesus is not ratcheting it up a notch. He's actually taking a step back as he talks to people. And he's taking a step back and he's saying, rather than looking at all of your actions that you try to live and be so good, let's look at your hearts behind the actions. Let, let's take a look more at your motivation and what begins the very actions in there. And so it's just an amazing two or three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. But today we're only going to look at two particular verses. And we will start as we look at these verses in verse 23. And here's what Jesus says on this day. Has these people gathered around him, good people, good religious people, people that I would say that were kind of above average in their Christianity, in their Jewishness. They were doing the good things. And here's what he says to them. So in verse 23. So... If you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, let me stop there and get you up to speed here. So these people he's talking to, he's actually in the Galilean area. And so he's talking to people that are about 40 miles from Jerusalem. And every one of those people listening to Jesus would have known that when he said, so when you're presenting a sacrifice in the temple, the temple that he was talking about would have been the temple, the capital T-H-E, the temple located in Jerusalem. And as good Jewish law-abiding, um, Bible-believing, Torah-believing people, they would have been the very ones who a couple of two or three times a year would have made the 40-mile journey from the Galilean area all the way to Jerusalem to present their sacrifices. And in the days of the New Testament, there were probably two specific sacrifices they would have made. One would have been the sacrifice of what's called the sacrifice of atonement. That would have been the sacrifice that they went forth to be made to be, have their sins forgiven. But there was another sacrifice that many of these people would have participated in, and that's simply just the sacrifice of gratitude. Because they were good Jewish, Bible-believing, Torah-believing, law-abiding citizens. They would have gone maybe a couple of times a year and just made a sacrifice at the temple to simply say, God, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for rescuing our, our, our ancestors out of Egypt. Thank you for having a plan. Thank you that the Messiah is coming to us one day. They would have been those ones that went the extra mile in their sacrifices. And on this particular time, when Jesus says, when you're making your sacrifice at the temple, he was probably more than likely referring to the sacrifice of gratitude. And so he's talking to all the people. And he says, so when you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar... It was a very specific time that they would have done. It, it doesn't, I don't think, means as much to us because, you know, we don't have to go to the temple. We have this church, another church. We can even worship wherever we want to. But the people in this day, in this context, knew that he was talking specifically about the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. And so it made them stop and it made them think for a second. If he's talking about that specific one, what specifically is he talking about? So he goes on to say this. So you're presenting this sacrifice at the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you. To me, Jesus is one of the most masterful communicators ever. Because he used that one little generic word in there, and suddenly remember that someone has something against you. 
So many times when you're studying scripture, people like to say, well, what does the real Greek say about that? So that word Keith, something, can you interpret the Greek so we know exactly what it is? Like, is it like if you're taking your, your sacrifice, the altar, and you remember that there was just some big fallout over an inheritance and that's what he's talking about? Or that something that he's talking about, is it somebody just did something really horribly wrong that hurt you so bad that you just had to walk away from them? What is this something that somebody has against you? So church, let me introduce you to Greek. And let me give you a Greek lesson and explain to you exactly what Jesus meant when he said, when someone has something against you, are you ready for this? You will walk out of here like biblical scholars knowing the Greek language. Something is interpreted something. Okay, did you get that? See, here's, here's why I say Jesus is such a masterful communicator. He didn't try to like say this is what it is. He left it so blank and so open that every single person listening had to fill in the blank with their own something. You see, when Jesus is talking about reconciling, reconciling broken relationships, he wasn't trying to categorize going, okay, here's, here's the three worst broken relationships, and these are the ones you got to fix. What he was doing is saying the most important thing in life is relationships. In fact, he's going to be later on in his ministry, what's the, the last commandment he leaves with them? To love your brother. And so he is raising throughout his ministry, he is raising up and valuing horizontal earthly relationships in a way that no other religious teacher has ever done it. So it's going, if you're taking your sacrifice to the altar and you remember that your brother has something, you fill in the blank whatever that something is, big, medium, or small, he says, you've got to stop right there. Something. And notice how he words it. He says, and your brother has something against you. you know, it would make sense in our mind if he said, and if you're taking your altar and you have something against your brother, you need to stop. Because if I have something against my brother, then I have to be responsible for it, right? Like there's something in me that I'm mad at that person about, that I've broken relationship, that I have conflict with. He's going, even if you have no conflict with your brother, and it's all cool and no problem, but your brother has a problem with you. He takes the onus of relationship and doesn't let us put it on someone else. We have to own the responsibility of good relationships, whether it's on our end or their end. Do you see what he's there doing there? He is raising the bar of relationships. So he says, and suddenly that someone has something against you. Look what he says next. And then you leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Now, again, you have to go back to the original. These folks from Galilee had walked 40 miles. It probably took them four days to get to the temple to deliver, this, to deliver the sacrifice. They probably had to bring two or three kids with them. They're carrying this live lamb or goat that they're going to sacrifice. It's hot. It wasn't an easy journey. Like, if I try to, like, just compare it to, like, a very difficult journey... Every time I have to drive from here to the Denver International Airport, it's a difficult journey. Do you know what I'm talking about? You're going, why did they build that thing in Kansas if it's supposed to serve Denver? It's like this hard journey. But that doesn't even compare to the journey they had to take. So these people had walked, journeyed for four days. They had to, one of them had to take off work. Probably the husband taking care of the family had to take off work, leave his business, whatever, whatever he did to bring money to make this four-day journey to deliver this sacrifice. There's a good opportunity possibility that when they actually got to the temple it's not like they walked up did it and went home they probably had to stand in line maybe another day waiting for their turn to give the sacrifice 
And they knew they had another four-day journey to get back home. And Jesus said this, if you're standing in line to deliver the sacrifice and you remember that your brother has something against you, some unreconciled conflict, then you're to leave your sacrifice at the altar. Now, can you imagine how frustrating that would be? You mean, I got to leave my sacrifice, this lamb. If I leave this little lamb here, it may not be here when I return. Then I got to walk back for four days. I got to find the person, talk to the person, reconcile the person. Then I got to come back for four more days and go. We're talking like two weeks of dealing with this conflict. And aren't we supposed to sacrifice to God? Remember, this is not the sacrifice of atonement. Well, we got to get this done because I got to get my sins forgiven. This is simply the sacrifice of gratitude. This is, this is the A-plus Christians taking a step forward and kind of going that extra mile and, and, and honoring God. And here's what God's saying. I don't want your sacrifice until you take care of the conflict. Now, not that he doesn't want the sacrifice, but here's what he's looking for. Jesus is going, but God wants your heart before he takes your gift. Because a gift without the right heart is nothing more than an object. It's not a true reflection of the heart. And again, Jesus is raising relationships up so high, and it's if someone has something against you, all this takes place. Here's what we need to understand. When it comes to reconciliation, it will cost us. It will cost you time. It will cost us energy. It will cost us pride. It will cost us humility. It will cost us so many things. It is not comfortable. But Jesus is going, but it's worth it. Because reality, what's taking place here, Jesus is really fulfilling the very thing that he said in John. He said, I've come to give you life and give you life more abundantly. And when Jesus said those words in the book of John, it wasn't just eternal life. God wants us to give us living life abundantly. And he knows us well enough that if we have broken, unreconciled relationships with people around us, then we are, not, we are not experiencing the fullness of life that he intends for us to. That God wants us to enjoy every single relationship. Relationships between parents and kids, siblings against siblings, friends with friends. God's going, I made you to bring those together. I made you to enjoy those, but when they're broken, you're not enjoying those. And when we don't enjoy those earthly relationships the way God intended, then we will even have broken relationship with our vertical relationship with God. So he said, I want you to leave your sacrifice and go and leave it there at the altar. And look what he says next. And go and be reconciled to that person. Leave your sacrifice Go find that person and be reconciled. You need to make things right. Now, I've been doing this long enough. Here's what I realize go through somebody else's mind many times. Well, I can only do my part. Like if reconciliation is a two-person part, right? So if God wants me to go try to make it right, maybe I've tried to make it right or maybe I shouldn't make it right, but I'm not sure they want to make it right. So how do I make it right if the other party's not willing? Here's what I would say. As you go to reconcile, you truly only can do your part. In fact, it's the book of Romans that says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. It says this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You see, we can't force peace on another person. 
let's say that Wally and I have some conflict between each other. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to reconcile with Wally. Now, Wally may not be near as a happy person, near as that place to reconcile with me. But I'm like, no, this says I'm going to go reconcile with him. So I walk and knock on Wally's door going, Wally, we got to reconcile. Do you, do you understand what I'm doing? I am projecting my agenda on Wally. And the minute you take your own agenda and you try to project it on somebody else, you've just created a greater division than what you had when you started with. And so what Jesus is saying here is when he says, go and reconcile, he simply says, go and do your part. Don't try to force them. Now, you can hope and we can pray and we can try to say everything right in order to be full reconciliation. But we are never responsible for the other person. We're only responsible for ourselves. In fact, it might be better to say this. Rather Rather than pursuing reconciliation, we should just be living a life of no regret. That I will live my life with Wally in such a way that if Wally has something against me, I can't change his mood. I can't change his disposition. I can't change his stance. But I will live my life in such a regret that Wally has nothing against me. Now, here's what this does. Remember they had to walk the 40 miles back and forth? They're thinking, whoa, that's a lot of work. So there should be some pre-work we do in this reconciliation. If I will live my life more loving... If I will live my life more aware of other people, if I will live my life more caring, then there's a good chance people won't have something against me in the beginning. So therefore, the reconciliation never takes place. So living a life of no regret when it comes to relationships is as much a proactive before the conflict as it is a reactive after the conflict. Are you with me? I mean, isn't it easier to stay friends and happy with somebody than try to make up afterwards? And so Jesus, once again, is raising the value, raising the perspective of horizontal earthly relationships to a level that we can value and love people just as Jesus loves and values people. And so he says, go to that person and be reconciled. And then he says this last, in the last part of the verse, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. You know what the key word is? Then. It's in that order. Put them through all of this. They're trying to make their sacrifices, walking that four days back and forth, but then they make their sacrifice. Wow, let's put it in context today, not on a mountainside, but right here. You see, because of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' death on the cross and the Holy Spirit, we have the option, the ability to worship anytime, anywhere. Our, our sacrifice is, is, is everything about us that we bring before God. We don't have to bring an animal. We just bring our lives. The book of Romans says a living sacrifice unto God. And so what God is wanting us to understand when it comes to relationships is that we should be living in such a way before we try to offer a sacrifice, we offer our lives of relationships, loving other people just like Jesus did. You know, think about this. What if we became the most giving church in all of this part of, of Denver. And I say giving like when it came time for the offering plate, people aren't just giving 10%, they're giving 20%. And we have an, a, a certain need and people give to that. And like we are known for our giving generosity here at this church. In fact, we're so generous, let's just pretend for a second that there's a need out in the community. They know to call South Subs Church and our people will give sacrificially to meet that need. But at the same time, if we're also not known as a loving church, 
If we're a church that's bickering and fighting with one another and, and the people we live next door to and family and friends that know we go here, do not feel that reciprocation of that kind of loving and caring. And then it's just conflict, conflict, conflict. Which one speaks louder to the world? A church that will give sacrificially or a church that will love unconditionally? And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to be my followers who, yes, you will give, but you're known louder, your life is known louder and more clear because you are a people that follows me, that loves unconditionally, including reconciling when there's broken relationships. In fact, if I was going to summarize this entire two verses here, here's how I would summarize it. If you're taking notes in your, in your outline, here's what it says. Jesus commands his followers to be difference makers by stepping towards reconciliation. Jesus demands, commands his followers to be difference makers. Woo, have you heard that word before? See, don't think difference makers that we've been talking about since the beginning of the year is simply by the things that we do being nice to the people around us. We're difference makers when our lives flow from the inside out. When our hearts towards relationships, that's when we're difference makers. Jesus commands his followers to be difference makers by, and I want to give you a word to add into your little definition there. We didn't put it for you to fill in the blank, but it's worth it because it's a more important word. Difference makers by prioritizing stepping towards reconciliation. Here's why that word prioritizing is so important. That's the reason Jesus said if you're delivering your, your, your sacrifice, stop and don't, don't give your sacrifice until you reconcile. We must prioritize it. And the reason that's so important for us to realize is because we're going to finish the sermon and it happened at nine o'clock. People walk up to me going, woo, that was kind of heavy, but I needed that. Thank you so much, pastor. Thank you so much. People get it. And you walk out here and our minds and eyes and thoughts get more on the Super Bowl than we do reconciliation. And what Jesus is saying is maybe put in today's terminology, before you go to the Super Bowl party, you need to reconcile. Before you offer your next, it is a priority of doing it. Not this thing, oh, that was a good one. I need to think about it. And we do like every other broken object in our house. We either ignore it or we discard it. And have we not done that to people in our lives? Brothers and sisters and children and moms and dads and aunts and uncles and friends and neighbors next door. We don't like you. We have conflict. So we either ignore you as a person and just think this relationship doesn't matter or we just discard the relationship. And Jesus never intended relationships to be throwaway. They meant to be eternal. So let me wrap up by this. Sometimes you hear something like this and you're processing, right? This sometimes when it comes to reconciliation, you're like, okay, my heart, you're, you're, you got my heart. You made me think about something. Now tell me, why is this so important? Not Jesus said it, that should be enough, right? But, but when Jesus gives us a command, he is smart enough. He understands our human nature enough. There's reasons behind it. Let me give you three whys we should prioritize our, our reconciliation. Here's the first one. Prioritizing reconciliation leads me to respond to others in the same way God responds to me. Prioritizing reconciliation leads me to respond to others in the same way God responds to me. You see, my relationship with God was broken. It was, it was, as, unbro it was as broken as any relationship I'll ever have on earth. And what did God do? He made the first step towards me through his son, Jesus. 
And there are times in my life, I bet if Jesus was going to be more human towards me and forgiveness, he'd look at me going, really? You've done that for the umpteenth time and you still want me to be your friend? Like we talked about this, you keep doing that same habit, that same thing over and over and over. And he's like, I- I'm done with that. Jesus has never done that. Or, or could Jesus look at me? Could he look at you going, really? I died on the cross for you and you just did that big bad thing? And you expect us to be like together? There's nothing that will separate me and you from the love of God, from the grace of God, from the forgiveness of Jesus. In fact, there's a great verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, and it says this. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. If you're taking notes on your outline, you could even just cross out people and write your name in there. No longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Do you know why God gave us the message, the ministry, the message of reconciliation? I can't tell you Jesus loves you and wants to forgive you. It's not a very clear verbal declaration if my life doesn't exhibit that same kind of forgiveness toward the people around me. The people will hear my words, but they don't understand what I'm saying because the life doesn't match the words. And so we've all been given this ministry of reconciliation. Through our lives, we live clearly the declaration of the forgiveness and reconciliation that Jesus offers every single person. Here's number two. Why do we prioritize? Number two, prioritizing reconciliation protects the other people around me prioritizing prioritizing reconciliation protects the other people around me told you i don't like to repair things years ago denise and i are about to go out of town with the kids for three or four days and she said hey there's a little leak underneath the under the kitchen sink i'm like well let me look at it i opened the cabinet it was just a drip 10 15 seconds later later drip and so I look at that, we're going, honey, it's, it's just a drip, no big deal. We'll look at it, I'll, you know, see what, the, what we need to do when I get home from out of town. Four days later, we come back in town. Do you know how many 10 seconds, 10, 10 second drips occur when you're away from the house for four days? It was a mess, okay? It was a mess. Man, the, 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 war, the wood of the cabinets, they were already warping. There was water in the kitchen floor. Like, it was a mess. We had to call the insurance company. They came out and said, yeah, we'll fix it, but you have a $3,000 deductible. We were saving money for a vacation with the kids, and we had to use all of our vacation money to pay for the deductible for this drip. And then the insurance people said, now we're going to have to tear up your kitchen. You're going to be without a kitchen for four weeks. But they said, good news is if you go out to eat, you can, you know, turn the receipts into us. We're going, McDonald's. My kids are going, McDonald's every night. This is awesome. Three nights of Big Macs, and we were done eating out, okay? Anybody been there at the kitchen, you remodel or torn up? Four weeks of a kitchen not being accessible in your house, it left us so stressed, so messed up, just like get this thing fixed. Here's what I realized in that one. It is that broken sink that I didn't pay attention to fix it affected the entire household. Now watch this, church. We think my lack of reconciliation with you or my lack of reconciliation with you only affects me and you. It affects everyone around us. So when we do prioritize reconciliation, it protects those around us. 
You with me? Let me give you a third one. We'll wrap up with this one. The third reason why we need to prioritize reconciliation. Prioritizing reconciliation allows me to gain control of my own life. You see, when I have conflict with somebody, they own me. Because I'm having all those conversations, those conversations I would say to you if I could say this. I mean, they are controlling my emotions. They are controlling things about me. And so when I pursue reconciliation, it allows me to gain control of my life. In fact, let me read a quote to you. It says this, unresolved conflict has a tendency to travel with you to other relationships. Mm, That one made it home. Unresolved conflict has a tendency to travel with you to other relationships. It can manifest, manifest itself in hurts and hesitancy to be more transparent with people, with hangups. It affects all the relationships around you. Every time I sit down with a couple and do pre-marriage counseling, we always talk about their family of origin. Because many times there's unresolved conflict with moms and dads and other family members that I've learned over the years that if it's not resolved before the marriage, it creeps into the marriage. But that's just not marriage. That's all of our relationships. And so when we prioritize reconciliation, it puts us in the line to experience future relationships the way God intended for us to. Now, let me wrap up and just say this. I struggled more with this sermon, I think, than any sermon I've delivered here since I've been here. And here's why. Because it's heavy. I knew this wasn't the type of sermon everybody's going, oh, pastor, thank you so much. I'll leave here feeling good. You feel heavy because we opened up things that you tried to push down. And the other reason I struggled this week is because I wanted to make sure that in this addressing over the next two weeks, this conflict that's not been resolved, that I didn't create undue, unnecessary shame or guilt. It was not like, and please hear my heart here. I'm not saying go get it right today, go fix it today. Prioritizing it doesn't mean you can fix it like that. In fact, let's go back to the story of Jesus. He tells a story the people are sitting on the mountain going, oh my gosh, that's me. I'm at the temple. And so they go back for four days. What do you think their mind was doing for the four-day journey back to reconciling the Galilee area? Boy, they were processing it going, this is so dumb. I shouldn't have to do this because this other person's fall. And they're like, but God, you look at me this way. They're having this, this spiritual conversation between themselves and themselves and themselves and God. It was a process. And maybe by the time they finally got to Galilee, their heart is more softened. It took them four days to get there. Their heart is more softened. And by the time they're knocking on the door to this individual's house that they need to reconcile with, they're thinking, but Jesus loved me and forgave me, so I must approach this person. So all that to say, it is a process. And I know sometimes there's things so deep when there's lack of reconciliation that it can't even be fixed in one conversation. I realize this, that sometimes you're dealing with the person that a conversation may never truly reconcile you, but you're doing your part. It could be that you go to this person and they respond so critical, so apathetic, that almost when you leave there, you're now struggling with more anger than you went there because at least you had it repressed before and now start it all up. It may be a prayer of forgiveness and reconciliation in your own mind with you and God beyond the first initial conversation with the person. 
You with me? So hear my heart, church. This is not to create undue, unnecessary, unwarranted shame or guilt. As Jesus told this story at the Mount um, Sermon on the Mount, I don't think he was trying to heap, get, heap guilt on people. He was trying to free them to experience life as he intended. And that's what reconciliation is all about. Us stepping into a life that God intended for us to experience. And so my prayer for you is not to go fix it. Not to be better. But to simply say, God, here is my heart. Help my heart to be as reconciling and then my actions to follow. In fact, let me just do this. Let me give you a prayer. If you're like, Keith, I'm ready to take a step. Not, you may not take the step over the finish line, but a step towards reconciliation. Let me show you a prayer, just a prayer that you can, you can pray. And it says this, Heavenly Father, help me to see, fill in the person's blank, the way you see them. And then pray, help me to feel toward that person the way you feel towards them. I believe reconciliation will never happen the way God intended till we can see people the way God made them. We live in a broken world, but it doesn't mean our relationships have to remain in a broken state. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. And, and I'll be honest, God, there's some days that I am more um, joyful with your word than other days. Um, this is just a heavy one, Jesus. But may you remind all of us, not just with my words, Jesus, may you remind us with your spirit. Your spirit never leads us to feel guilt and condemnation. You may lead us to feel conviction, but it's to lead us to a better way. And so I pray for my friends in this room that you would allow them, help them, lead them to experience relationships the way you designed. Help us not to discard. Help us not just to live with dysfunction, brokenness. God, would you lead us to restoration, to reconciliation. And help us to go at your speed, not to be lazy, but to take the steps with priority that you lead us. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.